Father, I'm very mindful that today we're on holy ground. Lord, we're looking at some lofty aspects of your character. And I know that I can never even hope to get anywhere close to the reality. But Lord, would you take my lips, anoint the words, that Lord, you would have the glory. We would understand more of your greatness, the beauty of your character. Open our hearts, our minds to receive. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be, our minds would be wetted, our appetites would be wetted, so that we go to look into these things further and expand our understanding of how amazingly wonderful you are. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. Well, this is our final session looking at the character of God. This is number seven. And I hope you found it useful to understand the greatness and the majesty of the God uh, whom we serve and worship. He is utterly awesome, but totally lovely. And the more I've looked at God's character, the more I have realized how important it is that we understand as much of his nature as our minds can comprehend, because it truly enlarges our faith and our trust in God. And I, I've said it before, I'll say it again, all three members of the Trinity share all the attributes that we've looked at and more. There's a few others I haven't, I, I'm not including, but they're sort of spin-offs from the ones I have done. Um, but our God is infinite, he's great. Um, and it's vital that we hold all of his attributes in balance. Because if we overemphasize one or more over the others, or underemphasize some, we'll go wrong. And then we'll have an unbalanced view of God. And, but I will be doing one more talk in this series, um, looking at the Trinity next time. Uh, but that's actually more to do with the nature of God rather than his character. But I believe that uh, this series would be incomplete without at least some consideration of uh, God as Trinity. And that's an awesome task in itself to try and do that in one session. But so, uh, so pray for me. Uh, but today I want to start with God's holiness. And at the risk of contradicting what I've just said about not putting any one characteristic of God above the others, I think we can say that God's holiness is at the very core of his being. When Isaiah saw the Lord in his vision in Isaiah 6, we read that it was God's holiness that was being proclaimed by the seraphim there, verses one to four there. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And it wasn't God's love they were proclaiming, but his holiness. And the result of the voice of the seraph as he did so, uh, was the shaking of the house, uh, which was then filled with smoke. And then when John had a vision of God's throne in Revelation 4, 
um, he saw the four living creatures around the throne. In verse 8 we read, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And this is the constant cry of those who are in God's presence. And his presence is magnificent in its purity and glory. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin. He is other. He's sort of set apart uh, because there is none like him. But God is far more than merely separated from sin. That would just be neutral. He is inherently and infinitely pure. So God's holiness means that he is separated from sin. He is other, for there is none like him. But God is far more than merely separated from sin, because he is inherently, infinitely pure. And in that, God is unique, because no one else is so holy, good and pure. We have a sin nature, which thankfully as believers will die with us, uh, because when we see the Lord beyond our time on earth, we will no longer have a sin nature. But we've never known such purity. Although as born again believers, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit to give us a godly hunger for purity. So it's no wonder that Jesus had to die so that we can receive his righteousness. Whilst in return, he's taken our sin. That's why we must be born again to be new creations in Christ and not merely to try to make our way into God's pure and holy presence in our own strength. We just can't do that. But even the angels who remained loyal to God and who see him in his glory, they are still created beings who, whilst unfallen, do not have the same inherent holiness that God has. The angels were created perfect, but with the power of contrary choice. And we know from scripture that one third of the angels chose to follow Satan and two thirds remained loyal to God. Similarly, Adam and Eve were created perfect, again with the power of contrary choice. And they also chose to follow Satan's deception. But God, however, is unique. He's other, he's utterly and inherently pure. And he cannot sin because it's part of his nature that he, he, he doesn't, he, God ha doesn't have the power of contrary choice because he is holy. He is sin free and praise God that he is. If he were not so, then he wouldn't be worthy of our eternal worship. And when we see those who had glimpses of the holiness of God and of Jesus in the Bible, we also see that those involved are awestruck by God's holiness. That's almost burning in its purity compared to our fallen sinfulness. And how wonderful it is that we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus so that we can have his righteousness for eternity. And the place where God dwells is holy. Remember the tabernacle and then the temple after that, where the part where God was said to dwell was called the most holy place. 
Nothing unclean was allowed into that area. We have Psalm uh, 24, uh, verses 3 and 4, which we uh, saw earlier in, uh, when Simon opened up the meeting. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. And we need the righteousness of Christ to be able to do that. And when God chose Israel to be his people, he called them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's Exodus 19 verse 6. This clearly impacts on us too, if we are to relate to God. Because we are also called to be holy, separated from sin and the world, and separated unto God. We cannot trifle with anything that is not pleasing with, to God if we want to have a healthy relationship with him. It just has to go. God has paid a heavy price for us. And he is entitled to receive our wholehearted allegiance and worship. And thankfully, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit to uh, help us in that. For the believer, God's holiness is gloriously good, but it's awesome. Because we will enjoy his presence forever, free from these sinful, decaying bodies, with everything good and wonderful with nothing to spoil God's renewed creation. For the unbeliever, God's holiness is also awesome. And it means the same for him or her to the extent that all sin and evil must be dealt with. But sadly for unbelievers, that includes them because their sins have not been forgiven in the absence of their repentance and faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That means eternal judgment is the only outcome possible for the unbeliever. And may God give us his compassion for those who are in that unbelieving state. Let's now move on to God's glory. And to some degree, I think this is something that's not easy for us to understand because we've fallen and we've never seen the fullness of God's majesty. It's uh, and that sort of shortcoming is, is, is highlighted for us in Romans 3, 23, because it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've fallen short of that glory. But there are different facets to God's glory. In one sense, it could refer to the honour and the excellent reputation of God. In Isaiah 43, verse 7, it says, everyone who is called by my name whom I have created for my glory. Did you see that? We are created for God's honour, for his glory. And that knowledge of knowing that we are created for his glory, that should impact how we live. It should impact what we say and how we relate to God. It, it raises the bar enormously for how we live. We know that in Hebrews 1 verse 3, the, the writer speaks of Jesus as being the brightness of the Father's glory. And that's not so much speaking of God's majesty, at least during Jesus' time on earth, but as Jesus reflecting the honour and the beautiful nature of God. God's very creation declares his glory. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. 
the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. But isn't it so sad that so many people close their minds to that? And I think that's one of the evils of the theory of evolution, that it shuts out the creator God. And we're just nothing more than overdeveloped pond scum. And uh, if we don't recognize there's a creator, we miss the glory of what the heavens are declaring. In another sense, God's glory also refers to the brightness and the majesty of God, as well as the bright light that surrounds God's presence. But the brilliance of that light must be part of his creation because God is not energy or matter, his spirit. But the light has been created to reflect the excellence of his honour and his majesty. And I guess to the extent that the brilliance of that light is created, it's, it's not strictly an attribute of God, but his glory is. And it helps us to understand the unique glory of God and his majesty, his undiminished honour, his worthiness of all praise and worship. And God's glory, we could say, is an expression of his unsurpassed and infinite excellence and is closely linked to the majesty of his being. God's glory is an expression of his unsurpassed and infinite excellence and is closely linked to the majesty of his being. Psalm 24 speaks several times of God's glory and concludes in verse 10 with, who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory, hallelujah. And when John saw his vision in Revelation 4, verse 11, the elders fell on their faces and worshiped God. Verse 11, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And if that wasn't enough, in chapter five, Jesus is similarly exalted. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And that moves on in verses 13 to 14, that every creature will give glory to God on the throne and to the Lamb. And it says, every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. There's a sense, I think, in which we must hold our breath in awe at the majesty and glory of God here. But so often we tend mentally to trivialise God, sort of shrink him in our minds. But if that's the case, it's our thinking that's faulty and not the greatness and the glory of God. And it's wonderful that through the person of Jesus Christ, he is our saviour and our friend but his glory and his grandeur remain undiminished. And that should cause us to fall at his feet in speechless humility. 
When the shepherds were told of the birth of Jesus by the angel, we read in, in Luke 2, verse 9, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. There's an awesomeness about God's glory that can cause fear in man, because God is so infinite and so majestic. And God was just so thrilled that his son had been born, that the glory came down. And then the disciples were afraid of when the brightness of God was seen at Jesus' transfiguration. We find that in Matthew uh, 17. But we could say uh, that also that the glory of God is such that in the heavenly Jerusalem, the glory of God will be its light. Revelation 21, 23, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And I think it's entirely appropriate that God's revelation of himself should be accompanied by such majesty and brightness. God's glory is the visible manifestation, manifestation there of his perfect and excellent character. And it's natural that it should reflect uh, his infinitely perfect nature, just who he is in every facet. And we can never comprehend, at least this side of heaven, the, the greatness and the perfection of our God. We can try and may the Holy Spirit open our hearts to do that. But I think we've got to wait for eternity to see more so that we can at least grasp a bit more of it. But it's entirely right, therefore, that we come before him with reverence and with awe. And God's glory reminds us of the need for that. And I think we can do nothing but come in awe and worship in the light of his glory. But then equally, uh, because of God's grace, we can come boldly before the throne of his grace because of all that Jesus did for us. Knowing, therefore, that we are loved more intensely than we can imagine. God's glory is breathtaking and we do well to ponder it and to marvel at it. But it also makes the wonder of God's love, mercy, grace and all his other attributes all the more wonderful as we do so. But then moving on, what's amazing is that God made us to reflect his glory. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of God. Now, obviously, we can't reflect the full splendour of God's glory. We're human. But there should be an increasing measure of God's beautiful character seen in us as we mature in the Lord. And then the fruit of the Spirit, as listed in Galatians 5, 23 gives us facets of God's character. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And that reminds us that we need to allow the Holy Spirit to move freely in our lives to make us more like Christ for his glory. And it's a major 
step forward in our Christian lives when we uh, realise that God is not just there for us, although in his gracious love he is there for us, um, but our lives are to be lived for his glory. Um, it's not just that uh, he's there for us to give us a, a health or a bigger house or a better career, more comfort, uh, or just, just to meet our needs. No, our lives are to be lived for his glory. And, for that, and that is what we were brought to life for. As Jesus said, we are to seek first in the kingdom of God. And these other things will be added to us. But God's glory is central and should be central in our, in our lives. And I think it's as, as part of God's creative genius that we are to give glory and reflect it back to our creator as we, as we live our lives. Just like a piece of fine art shows the genius of the artist. It's not inherent in itself. And we should just mention perhaps that God's glory is not there to puff up God in a selfish or a pompous way because that would be sinful. His glory is entirely selfless and pure and it's there for our good. It's beautiful entirely untainted and it's in the light of that glory that we see the depth of God's love and mercy expressed for us in Christ. For the believer God's glory is wonderful. It draws us to worship God in spirit and in truth. It beckons us to our eternal heavenly home where the magnificence of God's presence will fill us with awe and wonder deeply grateful for all that he's done for us. But for the unbeliever, God's glory is also awesome, but it's even terrifying for them. No one will be able to stand before God in his glory when the time comes for judgment. Evil that remains unpunished will detract from God's glory in the universe. When God punishes evil and triumphs over it, the glory of his justice and his righteousness and his power will be seen as his victory will be shown. But it's so, again, so desperately sad that so many people here on earth despise God's glory now. But there is a time coming when they will bow the knee before him, although for them it will be too late for salvation. Now, not entirely removed from God's holiness and glory, I want to look briefly at an attribute that we might at first glance find surprising, and that's his jealousy. We often think of jealousy in a negative light, but with God that cannot be so because he's perfect. And jealousy can be very positive, as Paul referred to in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 12. He says, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And Paul was jealously protective and watchful over the Corinthian Christians, guarding their welfare. And God is jealous to the, uh, to the extent that he seeks to protect his own honour. God declared in Exodus 20 verse 5, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Uh, and that was in the context of Israel not bowing down to idols. God is due the full devotion and allegiance of his people 
just like a husband or a wife is due the full affection and devotion from their spouse. And if that is withheld and given to another, then the husband or wife is rightly jealous. And so with God, because he had chosen Israel as his wife and he expected their devotion. Therefore, any default in that would provoke him to jealousy. And we, as members of the church, are part of the bride of Christ. And we should be loyal and devoted to him. Otherwise, he is rightly jealous. And no false god should receive any honour from us. But our devotion should be given to the true God alone. And that because we are betrothed to our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And when God is, being, is jealous for his honour, he's not being selfish or proud in any way. But honour belongs to him alone, so we mustn't try and take it for ourselves. And even if God uses us in any service for him, and we do it well, it is God who must receive all the honour and the praise for what we've done. God calls, he trains and equips us. He gives us the strength and the breath to do it. He anoints us with the Holy Spirit for us to be effective in our service for him. So he's rightly jealous for the honour arising for, from our service. And as, uh, as his servants, we do it for him and not for ourselves. And if we are healthy spiritually, we will give all the honour and the praise to God because it's his alone and he deserves it fully. Isaiah 48 verse 11 says, uh, it said that God would delay his anger. That's in verse 9, he said he would delay his anger with the reason for that being given in verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. And for the believer, God's jealousy is a good thing because we know that as his blood-bought possession, he will be watchful over us for the honour of his name. But for the unbeliever, the fact of God as a jealous God is less welcome because unbelievers do not give God the honour that's due to him and that incurs his wrath. The day will come when God will act in judgment because of his pure and sinless jealousy for his honour. And we've dealt with some, some weighty things today with God's amazing holiness, his glory and his jealousy. And it could seem that he is rather remote and daunting. So to conclude, I want to bring us down from those heights of God's holiness and glory. And this is your bonus bit. I want to look at a couple of characteristics that Jesus ascribed to himself in Matthew chapter 11, 28 to 30. He said, come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And as the part of the Godhead, Jesus is utterly holy, full of glory, rightly jealous for his honour. But here, Jesus says that he is gentle and lowly. And they are such beautiful aspects of God's character. 
And um, here, God, Jesus gives us a tender insight into what's in his heart. He's gentle and lowly. And of course, Jesus is the reflection of the Father's heart. So this must also be the case for the Father and the Holy Spirit. We have here a gracious and a gentle invitation from Jesus to come to him, inviting all who labour and are heavy laden. And it's actually a typical invitation from a rabbi to, to people to become his disciples. And Jesus is saying that he's different from other rabbis. He's gentle and he's lowly. Some people suggest that the labour refers to burdens that we put on ourselves, whereas the heavy laden refers to burdens, burdens that others put upon us. Either way, we all have burdens that we can come to Jesus with in order to find rest. Let's look first at the word gentle. Some versions say that Jesus is meek rather than gentle. And I think we can gain a flavour of the word from the three other times that the same word in Greek is used in the New Testament. Firstly, we find it in the Beatitudes. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Secondly, we find it in Matthew 21, verse 5, uh, which is quoting Zechariah verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 9. We find Jesus as the king coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey. And then thirdly, Peter uses the word in 1 Peter 3, verse 4, uh, when he encourages wives to have um, the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So in essence, the word is defined as showing a humility that is considerate, unassuming, gentle, mild, and meek. It's not weakness because there's, there's controlled strength in meekness. And despite God's burning holiness, his majesty, uh, his majestic and magnificent glory, and his fierce jealousy for the honour that's due to his name, we find Jesus, our wonderful saviour, who is also the most gentle, humble, and understanding person in the universe. He treats us tenderly. And as Dane Ortland said in his lovely book, Gentle and Lowly, he says the posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger, but open arms. And that's stunning good news for us, who fall short of God's standards daily. We deserve God's wrathful pointed finger, but in Christ we find gentleness and a warm welcome. God could easily swat us like flies for our failures, but he cares infinitely deeply for us. And he treats us with tenderness and gentleness. That's his nature. And he sent his son, Jesus, to earth to make it possible for us to receive that gentleness and enjoy it for eternity. And then we read that Jesus is also lowly, often translated as humble in the New Testament. And as we read the Gospels, we see Jesus as a man, fully human. He suffered uh, hunger, thirst, pain, tiredness, all the other human circumstances, yet without sin. But we also know he is fully God, who has dwelt in unimaginable glory from eternity past 
And that's totally beyond our comprehension, the extent of that glory. But because of our sinful plight, Jesus, the glorious one, came to earth, not as a king in a palace, not as one of the mega rich men of his day, but as someone who is lowly and humble. It would have been condescension beyond understanding for him just to become a man, but to come in poverty and face rejection, humiliation, torture, and death at the hands of those he came to save, and then to take the Father's wrath for us, his lowliness and humility beyond measure. But by doing this, he made it clear that he's accessible to all. No one is too low and destitute to come to him, because he knows what it's like to suffer and even for those who are powerful and rich, at least in their own uh, eyes or the world's eyes, Jesus has known power and riches beyond measure, and yet he humbled himself, and he's lowly. And the verse in Matthew 11 says, come, and Jesus is the most accessible and welcoming person in history. The only qualification seems to be that we labor and are heavy laden. And that fits each one of us. Jesus' own description of himself is that he's gentle and lowly. That's his heart. For those who come to him on his terms, in repentance and humility, trusting he is the only saviour there is, he's gentle and lowly. We find tenderness in his arms that is found nowhere else. He knows our failings. He knows our quirks but he still invites us to come and enjoy his welcome. More than that, he invites us in his infinite love to be his bride with all the privileges that go with that amazing position. For those who reject this invitation, they will see Jesus coming with power and glory, but it will be to, to deal with his enemies very decisively. If the only saviour that the world can ever know is rejected, then the awesome power and glory of God will be terrified, even in the midst of God's love, even for his enemies. God takes no pleasure in the death of his enemies, but his holiness and his righteousness demand that all sin must be dealt with. There will be no unforgiven sinner allowed in God's perfect eternal dwelling that he's preparing for those who will come to Jesus in response to his gracious invitation. God knows those who are his, and no one can hide or escape from him because he's everywhere. No one can stand against his holiness, righteousness, justice, unlimited power, and so on. But for those who will come to him through Jesus, there is a loving welcome that will give us a future for eternity that is far beyond all we can imagine or understand. And my prayer is that this series on God's character, in, you, in, the, in this series, you would have found, you have been stunned and amazed at the wonderful God that we have, that your minds and your understanding will have been stretched as we've tried to grasp his greatness so that you worship him more sincerely. And I'm, fully aware that I've given you only a small fraction 
of how amazing our God is. But can I urge you, stretch your minds further, walk closely with him, and look forward to the time when our fallen minds are replaced with unfallen brains that can take in God's beauty and majesty even more. We have a very bright future, and for that we could, and we should be, and we will be, eternally grateful to God. And may he have all the glory for that. Shall we pray? Father, I don't know what to say. We just, I just want to thank you that you are who you are. That we have such an amazing, majestic, holy, glorious God who's jealous for his honour, but also sent his son to reflect the fact that you are gentle and lowly. Lord, you are just so gloriously all-encompassing. And these are just the things we looked at today, Lord, with been other amazing facets of your character. Father, would you just imprint these things into our hearts and our minds? Give us the hunger to dig deeper, to go further, but above all, Lord, to live for you and for your glory in all that we do every day that you give us on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.